If you will, turn in your Bibles to the book of Haggai in the Old Testament. You may need to look in your table of contents. It is only two chapters. It's one of the minor prophets near the second half of the Old Testament. So we'll give you some time to find it. The book of Haggai. And as you are turning there, I'm going to give us a little bit of backstory and background to uh, this book. I will be in this for three Sundays. Um, but in order to understand what's going on here, we first go to the book of Ezra. So you don't have to turn to Ezra. I'm just going to give you the backstory there. Israel was in captivity to Babylon for many years. And Persia defeated the Babylonian Empire. And Cyrus, who was the governor of Persia, he sent the people of Israel back to Jerusalem. So they had left Babylonian captivity. They were still under the authority and rule of Persia. So they technically weren't free in a sense, but they were, ba- they were back home. And they were instructed to rebuild the temple, the Jerusalem temple that the Babylons had torn down. And when we look in the book of Ezra, there was an excitement there. They were back home now. Now keep in mind, this is probably a, this is a generation later. The, the, the generation that was in Jerusalem before has deceased, but this was the people of God back in the land that God had given them. And there was some excitement there. They were stirred up to rebuild the temple. And the work began to start. Yet in chapter 4 in Ezra, there were enemies of Judah and they sought to hinder the work of rebuilding the temple. They sought first to destroy the work from the inside. Saying, hey, we want to join with you and help you rebuild the temple. And Joshua and Zerubbabel, who we'll see in the book of Haggai, said, you have no part in this. You aren't of us. Uh, they, They could see straight through these lies. But then they sought to destroy this work from the outside and began to discourage the people. But even after that, a new king of Persia came on the scene and they went to that new uh, governor, I'm sorry, governor, and they, they went to him and they said, look, we want you to issue a decree that the building of the temple cease because if these people... Build up their temple, they will become strong and essentially be a threat to your kingdom. And so this new governor, this new king, issued a mandate that the work of rebuilding the temple be stopped. And it says they were forced to stop with arms. And so they were, using physical force, were, called, were, were forced to stop rebuilding the temple. And so verse twenty. Verse 4, verse 24 in Ezra says, The work of the house of the Lord stopped until the second year of the reign of King Darius. For 16 years the work had ceased. So the first thing I want us to notice before we get into Haggai is that fear had led them to disobedience. 
Fear led them to disobedience. They were forced with with arms, with weapons to stop the work of rebuilding the temple. God had called them to rebuild, but fear of man caused them to cease. And ultimately, fear paved the way for apathy, as we're going to see in our text. And you can read in Ezra 5, verses 1 and 2, it's essentially the extreme cliff notes version of the book, books of Haggai and Zechariah. So those two verses, we get filled out in these two books of the Bible. And so by the time we get to the book of Haggai, it had been 16 years since any work had been done on rebuilding the temple of God. Fear had dissipated They were no longer afraid. There was no longer any threat, but fear gave way to apathy. And what we're going to see in this particular chapter is that the people of God are going to move from apathy to obedience. They're going to move from apathy to obedience. And exactly how does that happen? So let me read this passage and then we'll get started. In verse chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet of Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, and there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land and on the mountains and on the grain, on the new wine and the oil, on what the ground produces, on men and cattle and on the labor of your hands. Then Jerubbabel and the son of Shealtiel and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month of the second year of Darius the king. So we see, we can see in that text as as we read through that, that they moved from apathy to obedience. They weren't working on the house of the Lord. They didn't care about it. And then the the Lord stirred them up and they began to obey. But the first thing I want us to see from this text, if we're going to move from apathy to obedience, we must recognize the nature of our sinfulness. And we look in Israel's sinfulness here. First thing I want us to see is that delayed obedience is disobedience. 
Delayed obedience is disobedience. As the prophet comes along and he speaks, he says, this, thus says the Lord. This people says, so the Lord is echoing the people's response. The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Now, think about this. God had told them 16 years ago, even before 16 years ago, to, to rebuild the temple. This was God's plan. God wanted them to rebuild the temple, but fear had set in, and now fear has given rise to apathy. 16 years and nothing has been done. It's not time. It's not time to rebuild the temple. But, but God had already told them to. God had already told them to rebuild and they are not obeying. Friends, you and I don't get to decide when to obey God. Delayed obedience is disobedience. I know about this on a very practical level. I remember growing up, I I know what it was like to be a kid. And my parents would often ask me to do something. Say, Josh, I need you to go in and clean your room. I'll, I'll, I'll do it later. Every parent's heard that, right? I'll get around to it. I never had any intention of, of obedience. Me saying I'll get to it later was just a way to put that off indefinitely. And so as the Israelites are saying here, it's not time to, to rebuild the temple. They don't have any intention on getting started again. Church, you and I don't get to put off obedience. When is, a good, when is it a good time to obey God's plan for our life? If God has put someone on your heart to share the good news with or to invite to church and you haven't done that yet, well, I'm, I'm just waiting on the right time. Now is the right time. When we delay in obedience, we're just like the Israelites. It's, it's not time to obey and fulfill the Great Commission. What, what are we waiting for? The truth is, your delay in obedience is simply disobedience. What, what did God command us to do in Matthew 28, 19 through 20? To make disciples of all nations and to baptize them, teaching them to observe everything that He's commanded us. What did He tell us to do in Acts 1, 8 as He ascended to heaven? To, to be His witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When is the best time to obey God's commands right here? When is it the right time to begin to obey the commands of God that He gave us 2,000 years ago? Now, now's not the time for us to share the good news. It's not time yet. Yes, it is. When are our people going to be ready to hear that they are sinners? They won't be ready, but now is the time to share. Now is the time to obey. The second thing I want us to see here is that pursuing personal pleasure and comfort prevents us from pursuing God's plan. Pursuing personal pleasure and comfort prevents us from pursuing God's plan. I want you to look here as we get in this text even further. They've said it's not time to rebuild. And then the word of the Lord comes by the prophet again in verse 4. Is it time for you yourself to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now I want you to, that, that detail there in the text about paneled 
houses. The word paneled is a word for comfort. It's not just that they've, it, it took them a while to get settled in their homes as they've come back from captivity and they're just trying to establish their routines and they've merely overlooked God's plan and they will get to it later. No, they are, they are pursuing leisure and comfort in their own homes. They are upgrading their own houses, enjoying whatever their money can buy. They were enjoying creaturely comforts with disregard to obedience to God. While they were living in comfort in their paneled houses, the temple lie desolate. They were apathetic to this. They were apathetic to the fact that the temple is desolate. They didn't care anymore. The excitement that they once had for the things of God there in the beginning of Ezra for rebuilding the temple that had faded. That fear set into apathy. And now they're just living comfortably, investing their time and resources into the creaturely comforts in their own home and their lives. Yet his, his command never changed. His call to them never changed. Church, we know what God has called us to do. Why do we delay? I believe often it's because we're too busy living nice, comfortable American lives. I'm not saying it's a sin to have nice things, but it is a sin when we pursue creaturely comforts in a cushy, comfortable life, simply doing whatever we enjoy while people are perishing and God has called us to make His disciples and be His witnesses. It's not the right time to build the house of God and yet you live in your paneled houses. It's, it's not the right time to be obedient to the Great Commission, yet we, can, we have time to binge watch our favorite TV show on Netflix or go to this concert or do that thing. We don't have the time or the resources to commit to God's kingdom, but we have the time and the money for other things. Pursuing personal pleasure and comfort prevents us from pursuing God's plan. I think if we look in this book and we see the sin of Israel here and we see their sin of delayed obedience and pursuing personal pleasure, if we were to take a step back and we would look in our own lives, we would see that's us also. We would see that we're guilty of the same things. Now, God has not called us to build a structure, but he's called us to something greater to establish his kingdom. And yet many of us just go on living our nice little lives and we... Say hi to the folks at the store and never open our mouths and share the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe we too have grown apathetic. So in order to move from apathy to obedience, we need to recognize our sin. Number two, if we're going to move from apathy to obedience, we must repent of our selfish Desires In the next verses, we see the, Israel, the Israelites are called to repentance. As we continue, we, we get into verse 5. It says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He's calling them to self-examination. Look at your life. And look at how things are going. And, and he begins to show the consequence of their sin. God has brought a lack of flourishing upon their lives as a direct result of their disobedience. Verse 6, 
You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, and there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Look, you're not flourishing. You're trying to live this nice, comfortable life in your paneled houses. You're, you're pursuing creaturely comforts. Well, how is that going for you? How is that working out, Israel? Well, based on these verses right here, it's not going so well. I see this last line of earning wages to put into a purse with holes. You ever felt that before? I did when I put $70 into my gas tank this morning on the way to church. You, you live this, you're trying to live this nice, comfortable life, but, but the Lord is putting roadblock and roadblock against them, and they're not flourishing. The consequence of disobedience here was a lack of flourishing. And this reflecting on their lack of flourishing, the reflecting on their current situation ought to lead them to see God's displeasure against human sinfulness. Now notice, it's not just them that's suffering. As we continue on, we're going to skip over a, a few verses. Look down at verse 10. It says, therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I want you to see something here. Their sin and their disobedience has consequences for everyone else. Not only is God making their life hard, he's withholding dew and withholding the produce. In verse 11, even worse, I have called for a drought on the land and on the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground produces on cattle and all the labor of your hands. See, when we sin and we disobey God, it's not just that we suffer the consequences, there's consequences Nationally, globally, in our families. We're not the only ones affected when we disobey and the consequence of sin is brought upon us. This lack of flourishing, as they step back and consider their ways and, and look and see how their life is going and see the constant setbacks, it should lead them to see God's displeasure against their sin and should lead them to repentance. Verse 7. Haggai again says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Again, examine yourself. And then verse 8, he issues the call again to obey. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple. So do what you're supposed to do. That I may be pleased and be glorified, says the Lord. Just as disobedience lead to a lack of flourishing and God's displeasure, obedience results in God's pleasure and Him being glorified. Consider your ways. You're trying to live this cushy life and God is against you, but yet if you live in obedience to Him, He will be pleased. He will be pleased and he will be glorified. 
he continued to discuss the consequence of sin there in verses 9 through 11. We've kind of looked at those already. Verse 9, kind of see that God is God specifically is the one who is against them here. You look for much, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why? Why is this happening? God, why are you doing this? Because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. I've called you to a task. I've given you something to do, to rebuild. For 16 years, what have you been doing? You've been just living a nice little comfortable life in your paneled houses, chasing the Jerusalem dream. And my house still lies desolate. Now, as we look in these verses, I want to be clear that not every act of human suffering is a result of personal sin. Sometimes and often, I might add, that God brings things into our lives that are not pleasant to test our faith and to make us more like Jesus. Human suffering is often how Jesus separates the wheat from the chaff. False believers won't endure suffering, but true believers will. And true believers come out on the other end of suffering with more joy in Christ, more faithful to Him, more loving and serving of others. They look more like Jesus having gone through that suffering. At the same time, if you are sinning and disobeying God's clear commands, you can rest assured you will experience some consequences. God will discipline you for disobedience. We won't get away with it for too long. He calls them not to flourish. When Jonah disobeyed God, he caused a storm for him to be tossed from the ship into the sea and a big fish to swallow him up and spit him up on the shore right where God told him to go to begin with. Disobedience always results in consequences, but obedience, while it doesn't mean a consequence-free life and a suffering-free life, obedience results in God's pleasure toward us. I think the call of God here is the same to us. Consider your ways. Consider the situation. And we're not talking about a temple here. He hasn't called us to go build a building, but He's called us to establish His kingdom. I read an article, I believe it was in Christianity Today, where it said, I believe here, I have it right here, where Southern Baptists have lost 1.1 million members over the last three years. And I think that's just... A small picture of the rest of the world. We looked at other denominations. We'd see similar patterns. We'd see decline. We'd see, and there's not as many people following the Lord as there there was even three years ago. We're in decline. We're the kingdom of God is lying desolate. But yet God has told us what to do. He's told us to make disciples. He's told us to preach the gospel. He's told us to to be His messengers and His ambassadors. Sharing with people that they can have eternal life and freedom from sin. As we preach the cross of Jesus Christ. I 
When's the last person you told somebody about Jesus? When's the last person you saw somebody at the store and said, you know, I wanted to tell you that God loves you? What? 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 What, what do you mean? Opportunity. When's the last time you were pumping gas and there's somebody at the other pump right, right across from you saying, hey, I want you to invite, invite you guys to come to church with us. When's the last time you spoke to somebody about the things of God? I think a lot of times we can be there and if we speak to anybody at all, we make small talk. Well, man, I hope it doesn't rain today. Sure is a nice day out. Or the sports or whatever it is. And we avoid spiritual conversation with strangers because it makes us uncomfortable. We avoid spiritual conversations with the people that we know because we don't want to ruin relationships. We are afraid. And if if it's not fear, then it's apathy. We really just don't care. We're fine to live in our nice little houses and pay lip service to the things of God, but we're, we're just like the Israelites. Consider your ways. How's this going for us? If we are going to move from apathy to obedience, we must repent of our selfish desires and pursue obedience. Number three, if we're going to move from apathy to obedience, we must have a healthy fear of God. As we continue on, verse 12, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord God sent him. Well, praise the Lord. We finally get to this point. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. After 16 years, we're finally getting somewhere. And notice, it's here, it says that it's their reverence, it's their reverence that led them to obedience. Now, my Bible here, the New American Standard, translates this word reverence, and, and, and I believe a better word is fear. And if you have a King James Version, I believe it translates it as fear. I think that's more accurate, and I think that's better. Because I believe in our Christian culture, we've softened the idea of what it means to fear God. And we see this here in modern Bible translations like mine. I, I generally love the New American Standard. I think it's more faithful to the original languages. But even here, I think that the word for fear is, captures what God is trying to communicate even better. We need to have a healthy fear of God. Now, I want to be clear about something. As Christians, we're eternally secure. Nothing can snatch us out of the Father's hand. There there is an unhealthy fear, a paralyzing fear that would cause you to doubt your salvation after every small sin. Oh my gosh, I did it again. How can I be... But understanding the grace of God doesn't lead us to this type of fear. But Jesus still says in the Gospels, do not fear the one who can kill the body, but fear the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. Often we have a greater fear of men, which leads us to certain decisions than we do of God. Our fear of man may lead us to disobey God, yet a healthy fear of God leads us to obedience. We need to have a healthy fear of God knowing that when we sin, consequences will come. 
There will be a lack of flourishing. His hand will be against us in our disobedience. But we fear people more than we fear God. Well, I know the Bible says that this is true, but I'm not going to speak on that because I don't want to offend anybody. What about offending God by not speaking what he's told us to speak? Well, I know I should evangelize. I really know I should tell people about Jesus, but I'm, I'm afraid of how they might respond. What about being afraid of how God will respond when you disobey his clear commands and his word? I believe one of the main reasons, if not the number one reason we disobey him is that we don't fear him. We don't have a healthy fear, a healthy terror of what a holy God can do and will do to those who disobey him. I believe we often have an imbalanced view of God. Well, God's a God of love, and so I'm okay, and he's not going to do anything. Yes, but the Bible also says he's a God of wrath, a God of holiness, and a God who demands obedience. If we're going to move from a place of apathy, then we must have a healthy fear of who God is. If we really fear God, we have a healthy fear, not a paralyzing fear that he's going to smite us every time we sin, because that's not scripture, but a healthy fear that there will be consequences for sin. He will discipline us when we disobey. We need to have a healthy fear of God. Number four, if we're going to move from apathy to obedience, and we want to see, this is they, they wanted to see the, the work of God, the temple rebuilding and continue. We want to move from apathy to obedience and to see the kingdom of God flourish once again and, and see this period of decline in the church move from a period of growth. If we're going to move from apathy to obedience, then we need, to, we need God to stir up our spirits. I want us to look at the final verses here. Verse 13. Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. What caused them to start working? That God stirred up their spirits. This was not something that they could do. This was something that God did upon them. The Lord stirred them up and they began to work on the house of the Lord. Notice what we see here. First, that the word of God is proclaimed. Verse 13, Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, speaks the message of God to the people. And what is he preaching? The message that he's proclaiming is that God would be with them. God's presence would be with them. If God is going to be with them, what is there? What are they afraid of? Maybe they're going to think back, oh, well, we started this before. Remember what happened to us? Those men came with arms and confronted us and caused us to stop. I don't know if I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. Might they come back with their arms? Yeah, they might. They might. But I'm going to be with you. Keep preaching. 
I know I shared recently that there's a, a pastor in Canada who they continue to meet and, and gather. And they had a short hiatus when, when COVID happened, but they started gathering again. And even as things began to progress and churches all across started to gather again, Canada has still had some strict rules where they couldn't gather. Well, this church and this pastor, well, we're going to keep gathering because the Bible tells us to. The Bible tells us not to neglect the, the meeting of ourselves together. And so we're going to assemble and we're going to worship. And this pastor was arrested. The pastor's on trial. Just north of us and on our continent. What can man do to me? God is with me. We're going to keep obeying. We're going to keep at the work. We're going to keep doing what God's told us to do because God is present with us. So we see that the word of God is proclaimed and it's a proclamation of God's presence. And then we see that the people's spirits are stirred up once again and they begin to work. They begin the work of rebuilding the temple. I want us to see that the word of God proclaimed by the messenger of God that promises the presence of God stirred up the spirits of the people of God to revive their passion for the work of God. The word of God proclaimed by the messenger of God promised the presence of God and that stirred up the spirits of the people of God to revive their passion for the work of God. What we need today, church, is for the people of God to have their spirit stirred up once again. We need the spirit of God to convict us in our apathy and disobedience and reignite our passion for telling the good news of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me for God to stir up our spirits? For God to do a work in us, not just in our church, but in our community and in our nation. The work of God began to resume after 16 years of nothing. They begin to obey because the Lord had stirred up their spirits. You pray with me that that will take place. That God would stir up our spirits. That He would wake us up. That He would reignite in us a passion for the gospel. A passion to share the good news with a lost and dying world. We need to have our spirits stirred up and only then will we begin to get back to work at reaching the lost and seeing souls saved. And as we conclude, I'm going to read a short poem written by Leonard Ravenhill. It's in a book called Revival God's Way, a book that I've been reading. He says this, I see the peril of the world. I see it rot. I see the church and know she has not got what she should have of Calvary, love and passion. She loves her ease and style and this world's smile and fashion. Oh Christ, was it for this that thou didst bleed for churches blind to human need? For lounging pew warmers who never tell of saving grace to sinners bound for hell. You promised us a baptism of fire, but here we are bogged down in slothful mire. The people, fat, content, increased in goods, resentful if we prod them for their moods. Forgive them, Father, oh forgive. Shake them awake and let them live. Applaud the plain of Pentecostal power. Less endowment cannot meet this hour. 
before you come to take your spotless bride, we trust you for a world revival tide. I pray that as we see the world and we see how it's going and progressing, or digressing, I should say, and we see the state of the church, that we're the decline of Christianity in America, that God would wake us up. That God would give us a burning passion to share the good news with a lost and dying world. We have the grace of God, and I pray that we would be people who share it. So when we see that person at the grocery store, may we be tempted not just to talk about the weather or sports, but to see that person as God sees them and say, man, do you, do you know Jesus? Have you been saved by God's grace? Let me tell you about it. I pray that God would stir up our hearts. Let's pray. Father God, I pray right now, Lord, as we look at the book of Haggai and we look at this people that are living a life of comfort with disregard to the work of God that you've called them to, God, that we would step back and we would see ourselves there. People, we can see the decline in our country. We see the decline of Christianity in our nation. We see it happening before our eyes. We know that it's happening and the kingdom of God is lying desolate. God, would you wake us up? Would you stir our spirits? Give us an increased passion for for the gospel of Jesus Christ that we can't but open our mouths and tell somebody. And use us to share the good news so that people might be saved. And when this starts to happen and people start getting saved in our communities and in our country, we'll begin to see something glorious happen. God, I pray if there's anybody in this room right here who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, God, that you would save them today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.